Bible. I encourage you to use that red Bible in front of you. Find that page 926. You also want to find 1 Thessalonians, which is page 986. So 926, 986, find both. Stick a bulletin in there. We're going to be flipping back and forth to see uh, how the church in Thessalonica got started. And so uh, as you're turning there, though, quick show of hands. Are you the type of person to step over a penny lying on the ground, or are you the kind of person that would stoop down to pick it up? Step over. Step over a penny. Just keep moving. Don't have time. It's too far down. Might not get back up. And uh, all right, those of us that would stoop down to pick it up, wow, all right, amazing, the stoop down habit, uh, but there is at least uh, some divergence here uh, in the crowd, probably because of what we think about a penny, uh, whether we value it or not. I doubt there would be any disagreement in our sanctuary if I asked a question regarding a $100 bill, right? Who in here would step over a $100 bill and keep going? Not too many of us. We'd risk uh, going down that low to pick that up, but because a penny is so ordinary, perhaps even seemingly easy to come by, something that we're so familiar with, we often don't pay much attention to it. Whether we lose it from our pocket, whether we lose it in our checkbook leisure, you know, hey, there's just a penny, we're, we're off a penny or two, maybe we're not really paying attention to it. Perhaps we don't even pay attention to what's on a penny. Okay, quick, without looking, pop quiz. Do you know which way Lincoln's face is facing? All right. Do you know the word imprinted on the one cent piece to the left of Abraham Lincoln's profile? Some of you might know. <laughs> on the tail side, it's a picture of what? The Lincoln Memorial. But there is a new penny. And does it have the exact same photo? No, it does not. All right. And what initials are to the right of the building? And whose are they? Ooh. All right, so as ordinary as a penny is, most of us couldn't answer all those questions. Why? Because we don't really look at things we think we already know. It's like listening to the flight attendant give the you might lose cabin pressure speech. You just put the headphones on, you get the book out, you just keep going through it, right? And so we don't study the familiar and the fact that something is ordinary might even stifle any impulse to study it. That actually might be the problem with many Christ followers when it comes to studying the church. Familiar with it. We know what the church is. We know what church is supposed to be about. We know who makes the church. The gospel. Perhaps even with Jesus. We can take all of these, the church, the gospel, Christ, all of them for granted. And we can always be on the lookout for the mind-blowing, the new big thing that God is doing, that at times we miss the old little things that God has been doing all along. And so over the next three months, we're going to turn to Paul's earliest letter to the Thessalonian church. The Thessalonians, in the first letter there, is written a mere 20 years after Christ is resurrected. A.D. 49, A.D. 50, somewhere in that time period. And these Thessalonians are an example of very ordinary believers. But with an extraordinary God, that church was planted by men who turned the world upside down, and they became a church that in that whole region turned the region inside out by the power of the gospel. They were planted by a group of men that turned the world upside down, and they became a church that turned a whole region inside out by the power of the gospel. And so what we're going to see here is that the world is not turned 
upside down or inside out by experts, but by converts. Ordinary converts. That's what God has been doing for millennia. In churches large, in churches small, in urban churches and rural churches, in churches that meet in cathedrals and churches that meet in basements. There is always more than meets the eye when it comes to the church. And let's see how this ordinary church has a very ordinary start in Acts chapter 17. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a rent-a-mob, right? They, they set the city in an uproar, and they attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, King Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed, when they heard these things, when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Lord, would you give us, what, 2020 vision, right, to see the work that our extraordinary God is doing among our ordinary lives as we gather together. The first thing we want to see here is the place. We kind of have the place of Thessalonica to learn a little bit about this city. We need to know uh, how Paul gets here to Thessalonica. So now turn over in your Bible to the one temporal marker we have that will set us on our journey for the whole sermon series, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 page 986 in your pew Bible. This is a temporal marker to show you when Paul came to Thessalonica. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. And so to place Paul there in Athens, you have to kind of understand the whole narrative of the book of Acts. In Acts 16, Paul gets the Macedonian vision, right? There's this man that says, would you please send someone to help us understand the gospel? And so Paul and Silas, with their protege Timothy, who they picked up in Lystra, they go to Philippi, and that's where for the first time in the book of Acts, Luke joins them. So we have Paul, Luke, Silas, Timothy, all in Philippi. They travel there to plant a church. And see if this is who you'd plant a church with. A rich woman, a former demon-possessed girl, and a Philippian jailer. That's the makings of every church planning book out there. Find former demon-possessed people, find some rich ladies, and then get a local bouncer. Call that a church, and then leave, because after that, they get put in prison, right? They get beat, and they get shamefully treated and sent out of Philippi. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 2, 2, that they were shamefully treated, and they were sent out. So after they left Philippi, they traveled 100 miles along the Ignatian Way, 
where they come to the city, the city of Thessalonica. We see that Paul has this undaunted spirit that is in every pioneer missionary, just like David Livingston. David Livingston said this, I am prepared, I am prepared to go anywhere as long as it is Ford. Right? And that's what Paul did. Ford, Ford, Ford with an all-consuming passion to preach the name of Christ where he has not been made known. And so Paul, it was his conviction, it was his desire, it was his concern for people that he was not content with just making it to heaven himself. He wanted to bring as many people as he could draw along with him. So even though he got kicked out of Philippi, he continues on 100 miles to Thessalonica. And there in Thessalonica, he stops because it is a strategic city for gospel impact due to its size as well as due to its location. It is the capital city of Macedonia. At least 200,000 people live there. And it happens to be the city where three rivers converge. So there's commerce. And there also is, right through the middle of the town, the Ignatian Way. And if you don't know what that is, it is the big highway that runs east to west that connects all of that area. And so people had to go through Thessalonica to basically get anywhere else in that region. So it was a very strategic city for gospel impact. And Paul is there, which we heard, for at least three Sabbaths, reasoning in the synagogue from the scriptures. Some of us believe that he was there as little as 15 days. If he arrived on the very first Sabbath, all the way to three Sabbaths, it could be as short as 15 days. Other people believe that he could have been there as, up, as long as four months. You can read about that kind of there uh, later if you look at Philippians and see that the Philippian church sent him two care packages. It took quite a bit of time for the Philippian church to probably go there and back, go there and back. And so some people say he was only in the synagogue three Sabbaths, but maybe he ministered to the Gentiles longer. No matter how long he was there for Paul, it felt like he barely settled. And from chapter 17, moving on, he goes down to Berea. Berea, we know them as the church that began to study the scriptures for themselves and to see if what Paul said was true. Timothy and Silas, they stay in Berea. Paul goes by himself to Athens where he gives a, a famous address to the Areopagus, preaching to uh, the city who has the, the, the idol even of the unknown God to cover all their bases. And Paul does a great work of contextualizing the gospel for them. And it's while they're separated, while Silas and Timothy are in Berea, and Paul is in Athens, that I believe that Paul tried to get back to Thessalonica. He was so concerned for their faith, only there for a short amount of time, that he wanted to make sure that they were doing well. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Chapter 2, and you can just hear Paul's concern for these people that he loved so much, that he wanted to get back there. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, but not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. He couldn't get back there to check on these people that he saw have such good gospel response. And so Paul goes from uh, Athens down to Corinth. And as he's traveling, he is able to send Timothy back to Thessalonica. Timothy visits Thessalonica by himself and then eventually is able to catch up with Paul in Corinth and to deliver this great report. This report is found in chapter 3, 
verses 6 through 10. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10. So Paul's in Corinth. Timothy has finally met up with him in Corinth, and he brings this good news. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before God, as we pray most earnestly night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. You know, Paul at times often gets the bad rap of being an evangelist. And evangelists are known for going out there and preaching the gospel and seeing conversions, and then that's all they care about. But Paul here is not satisfied until they have gospel maturity. You see, evangelism doesn't come full circle until there's discipleship. And I would even argue discipleship isn't full circle until those disciples that you've made are out there being evangelists. And it's kind of this this circle that we make. And so Paul longs to see them grow. And so he writes in this letter to fill up what is lacking, what he wasn't able to teach them, to make sure that they remain solid and stand firm in the faith. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy write this letter. Did you see that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Notice that there are three preachers here. That's our second point, the preachers. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter is from all three of them. And throughout this book, we see that in all of these personal pronouns that are plural. Look with me first at verse 2. Together, as a team, it says, we give thanks to God the Father always for you. Chapter 2, verse 1, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Chapter 2, verse 5, for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with pretext for greed. God is witness. Chapter 2, verse 9, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Verse 17, but since we were torn away from you in person, right, we endeavored the more eagerly with great desire to see you face to face. And finally, chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens. Sometimes we think of Paul as this pioneer missionary journey all by himself, but he has a team of preachers with him, a competent team, and it's actually one of the great strategies that we have to disseminate the gospel. We want to be a church that spreads the gospel out, and what is the way that you spread the gospel out? By having a plurality of men that are able to handle God's word. And so Pat praised God, and we prayed for the men that have gone out of our church to share both at the Loudoun Congregational, Ernie, Jim, Dennis, Ross, and today, Bill is actually at Harvest Bible at Nate Pickowitz's church in Gilmington covering for Pastor Nate, so he can't be in two places at once. He's actually there at Harvest covering for him, preaching on 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, How ironic is that? And so, Paul did very little on his own. He went with a team, and he wrote this letter as a team, and let's learn some things about these men. The marks 
of a minister. And I would ask you to ask these questions about yourself in your ministry to see if you have the same character, the same ability as these men in whatever ministry God has called you to. First, let's go back to Acts 17 and see that these men had the courage to share. These men had the courage to share. Notice where they had the courage to share, verses 1 and 2. When they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in to the synagogue. Doesn't sound very ecumenical, does it? Doesn't sound very seeker-sensitive? You can tell why they needed to have courage by the response that they got. And we heard about the response in verses 5 through 9 on how the leading officials wanted to kick them out of the town. Basically, whenever Paul went into a synagogue, he really wasn't there too long. The Jews always wanted to kick him out. He suffered persecution after persecution after persecution. I wonder how many of us would continue to go into the synagogue if we knew that what we were going to face was persecution every time. Would we want to begin to reevaluate our philosophy of ministry? Would we want to reevaluate how to do this missions thing? Surely this cannot be God's way of progressing the gospel if every time we suffer persecution. But Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, nor of its power, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Paul had his countrymen on his heart. He had a concern for them and a love for them that gave him the courage and the love to speak the truth in love. And he went into the synagogue and he would reason with them for three Sabbaths. You know, it's very hard to give your life to something that you don't believe is true. Paul tells the Thessalonians in chapter 1, verse 5, that our gospel came to you with full conviction, full assurance. Paul had the courage to go into a synagogue and to preach that Jesus is the Messiah that they crucified because he had a conviction that Jesus Christ was the only way of salvation. Listen to Galatians 1, verses 15 through 16, where Paul talks about his call to be a missionary. But when he, God, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul was on the Damascus Road, and he got to see the risen Christ as Lord, and that is what said he was pleased to reveal his son in me. And church, if we don't have a full conviction of the truthfulness of the gospel, we will be cowards. It's very unlikely that you will share the gospel if deep down inside you are unconvinced of the truthfulness of the gospel. Christian courage doesn't come from the bravado that's inside of these men. For Paul, Christian courage comes from knowing the outcome of his faith. Listen to Paul as he's writing from a different prison. This time in Rome, uh, writing to the Philippians. In Philippians 1, 20 through 21, Paul says, It's my eager expectation and my hope that I will not be ashamed but that it is with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul said, I have full courage, whether I live or whether I die, to present the gospel. Friends, do you live, do you minister as if your faith 
is a convenience to be relied upon only in normal times? Is your faith only there for you at your convenience when times are just easy? Do you only tell truths that are safe to tell? God loves you. God bless you. Those are the ones that are safe to tell. Or do we have the gospel courage to live lives and to minister in the courage that our mission can't fail? The lamb wins. Saints get resurrected. And it's because Paul believed in a resurrection after seeing Christ resurrected that he said, I have the courage to go out there and do this. Friends, we have nothing to lose in having the courage to share the gospel because if they kill us, we will rise again. The lamb wins, the church grows, and true evangelism takes courage. Sure, fear and doubts, they do shake us. But without fears and doubts, we would soon fall asleep in the American church. We are a country that has affluence. We're a country that has convenience. And we're a country that promotes tolerance. And if we don't have a little bit of fear and a little bit of doubt that shakes us from time to time, I think we will actually lose hold of Christ. And we will just fall asleep and be that church that is just in comatose because it's so easy and it's so influent. True Christian ministry takes courage, the courage to share the gospel. And the courage to share the gospel comes from knowing what the content of the gospel is. Second thing, not only had the courage to share, but they had the content to share. These men had to learn to handle God's word. Sylvanus was learned in regards to God's word. Take a look back at Acts chapter 15. Did you know that Sylvanus is his full name? He also goes by Silas. But if you know him real well, he might even go by Cy. Yes, right, the very first, you know, Duck Dynasty guy here, Uncle Cy. At our table, he's been known as Cy Cy, as we've been working through Acts as a family. And uh, we have little funny names for all the apostles here. But in Acts 15, 22, we see here that this Silas guy is a leading man among the brethren. Look at 22. It seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. So they sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, and here's our phrase, leading men among the brethren. Silas was part of the Jerusalem council, probably a lot more of Paul's equal than his understudy. And not only was he a man that was a leader among the brethren, always short on leadership in a church, but he also was a man who knew God's word. Look over at verses 32 and 33 of chapter 15. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, here it is, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. You know what that means? They had the ability to strengthen the troops with long sermons. Yeah, it's, it's fun preaching that passage, okay? There, there's other passages that are going to be more difficult as we work through 1 Thessalonians, but Silas really had the ability to be able to share God's word with people, and he was able to go on missionary journeys, and I would argue that it was the depth that he had in God's word that produced the length and ministry that he had, as well as the breadth of outreach that he had. If you want to go on a mission trip with us this year, we would encourage you to get deep in God's word first. We don't want to send out the weakest and hope that a mission trip just changes your life and actually gets you excited about Christ or, or maybe just kind of begins to spark a little, you know, thing in your heart. We want our most mature going out to bring God's word. 
So, so, so memorize scripture. Get into a Bible study. It was his depth in the word that led to the length of ministry as well as his breadth of outreach. Not just Silas, though. Paul did it as well. Go back to chapter 17. Look at verses 2 and 3 and see what Paul did in the synagogue. Verse 2, Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. What scriptures is Paul using? The Old Testament. It's a great discussion for your family this afternoon. Can you reason from the scriptures, only using the Old Testament, proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and then say, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is that Christ? Can you do that? You see, Paul's method in witnessing here was taking them to the Old Testament to show them what the Messiah was like from the Old Testament. He is not fundamentally arguing about Jesus. He is arguing with them about who is this Messiah? What do we expect him to be like? What is he supposed to be doing? What does the Old Testament teach us about the Messiah? What are we to be looking for? And he shares the Messiah is supposed to be a suffering servant, not just a conquering king. And when he begins to build that and reason with them and explain that to them, he connects all the dots and he finally says, you know who did that? Jesus. This is the one who fulfilled these prophecies. You see, our gospel is rooted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament promised the Messiah, and the New Testament shows that Christ fulfilled it. That's why Paul says here he explained. Maybe he explained from Psalms 22. One of my favorite passages when I read it, I thought, this verse has to be in a New Testament verse. And I come to find out, it's in the Old Testament. Go this afternoon, read Psalm 22. Isaiah 53, why he suffered. Habakkuk 2, all to show that Christ in his earthly life was the seed of David, the Messiah. And then he probably went to Psalms 2 to prove that by Jesus Christ resurrecting from the dead, he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He had this exchange with them in the synagogue where he explained, where he proved, where he answered their questions, and it says that their minds were opened. Who else had this kind of exchange in the Bible? Remember Christ on the road to, on the road to Emmaus? He's there after he's been crucified. He's in his resurrected form, and he meets two guys traveling from Jerusalem back home, and they are two Jews who have no category for a suffering servant, for a crucified Messiah, and they're dejected. All of their hopes have been completely obliterated. And Christ goes, why are you guys sad? They're like, where have you been, man? Did you not, have you not known what has happened? They've crucified Christ. And what does Christ do? He begins to prove the Messiah must suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And when they understood who this person was, Luke says, their eyes were opened. That's what happens here. Paul's doing the same thing that Jesus did. He reasoned, he explained, he proved, and what's the result? 1 Thessalonians 2.13 this is what Paul says as a result. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. This morning, if you're here as an unbeliever, the most convincing arguments for the truth that Jesus Christ is God is the absolute and total fulfillment of prophecies. 
If you'd like to know more about how Christ fulfills Old Testament prophecies, I can encourage you to just give one more hour of your time and come to Sunday school with Eric Seinhauser doing survey of the Old Testament. You can see how Christ fulfills the whole Old Testament. My Christian friend, I hope you feel challenged to study God's Word. Do you have that kind of content that Paul had? Do you have that kind of ability to argue from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Messiah? You see, I've come to find out that everybody wants truth and everybody wants truth simply. We want to know all there is to know in the Bible in two hours. There is no way to know God's word without studying God's word. I know some of you don't like to read. And I would be completely open for any idea you have of how you can know God's word, this treasure. Don't get bored with it. The more you get bored with it, the more temptation looks good. How do you study this? How do you know this if you don't want to dig into it? I'm open for suggestions. But I think the way that people get saved and the way that Thessalonian church got started was that Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He knew it. And are you a minister today that can reason with somebody from the Scriptures, that studies it to soak it in, that shares it for it to stick? We would love to come alongside of you and train you in that. I have a book I want to give away today. There's four copies. It's called God's Big Picture. It's thin, big font, easy reading. If you can read this in a week, I'd like to give it to you. I'm putting a challenge there. It has to be in a week. Tracing the storyline of the whole Bible. If you don't know what the Bible's about from cover to cover, this book gives you an overview. Love to give it to you at the door. Study it, soak it in. All right, do you have the content? They also had conflict in sharing. That's our third point, our final point. They had conflict in sharing. They knew how to handle opposition. Because when you have courage and you have content, guess what comes next? Conflict. You have courage to share, you have the content to share, you're going to get conflict. Friends, martyrs did not die because they believed the gospel. Martyrs died because they proclaimed the gospel. They didn't just keep it to themselves, they shared it. And that's what Paul and Silas and Timothy did, and they got into trouble. And so Paul reminds them in chapter 2, verse 2, that we were shamefully treated at Philippi, but we didn't stop, and we came to you, and we've been preaching to you that you would experience persecution here. What happened to Paul, Silas, and Timothy when they were in Philippi? They got beat and put in jail. But what do we find them doing after getting beaten and put in the county jail? Singing hymns and praying. That's the kind of demeanor that these men have in adversity. They considered it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ just been chewing on that all week long, that there are men out there that are praying, men and women out there right now that are praying, Lord, would we suffer for the cross? Could we kiss the cross? Could the cross become dear to us? Just floored by that, we consider it a worthy thing to suffer. Beloved, some Christians today in America want enough of Jesus to be identified with him, but not seriously enough to be inconvenienced by him. And as the social cost of claiming to become a Christian increases, the good news is the percentage of nominal Christians will decrease. Because Jesus Christ tells us in the parable of the sower that suffering is one of the marks that shows whether you are a true Christian. And as our culture becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, we should not be outraged, but we should outreach. In other words, 
the more outrageous the wicked are against the truth of the Bible, the more courageous the godly are for it. Consider the transformation in Paul's life. You remember Paul before he was converted? Before he was converted, he was outraged that the church was preaching that Jesus was the Messiah, and so he went about persecuting it. He says in his testimony, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently, and I tried to destroy it, Galatians 1.13. He says in 1 Corinthians 59, I am the least of apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Saul was outraged at what was being taught. But then the direction of his life was dramatically changed as he was confronted by Christ on the Damascus Road when Christ said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Do you see how Christ links himself with the church? You're persecuting me. And Paul went from destroying the church to building the church, wanting to never do anything again to hurt her. And his debt to Christ because Paul was saved and called all in the same moment. Do you know that? Paul got saved and called to be a missionary of the Gentiles without a choice. And so I believe he actually was a tent maker to be able to say, I want to offer something. I want to do something willingly for you, Lord. I, I didn't have a choice in my calling, but I do have a choice in not getting paid. And so he did all this extra work, I believe, to show that he still wanted to do it. And so his debt to Christ was transformed into a debt to bring the gospel to all people. And he knew no limits in its scope, and he knew no limits in his suffering. Christ says, I am going to show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians says, necessity was laid upon me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. He went from an outraged persecutor of the gospel to an outrageous preacher of the gospel. Finally, with all that work, the gospel comes to Thessalonica and a church is formed. Go back to Acts 17. We'll wrap up with this. Acts 17, verse 4. Paul had the courage to share Silas and Timothy. They had the content. They did it in the midst of conflict. And as opposed to being something that destroyed the gospel, it was something that actually helped the gospel. And now we see that the fruit of their ministry, they had converts. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Do you hear that? He preached the gospel, and Jews believed right out of their own synagogue. He preached the gospel, and Gentile pagans believed even as adults who have never been raised in a religious context. He preached the gospel, and not a few of the leading women believed. Isn't that good? Jews right out of their own synagogue, pagan Gentiles who have no religious upbringing, and not a few of the leading women. Every kind of person, every age, every race, every gender, all saved by God's grace, all transformed by God's grace, and their testimony spread throughout. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Here's application for us. As American Christians, we love to put the emphasis on what we were saved from. That person came out of a cult background. That person came out of homosexuality. That person came out of the Roman Catholic Church. That person came out of legalism. 
We have a church here in Thessalonica with every kind of person in it, and guess what the emphasis is on? Not on who they were, but on what they became. Church, the moment you get saved, every single one of us has the exact same resource of the Holy Spirit. And I think we are far too, more, far too interested as an American church in, oh, that person's going to have a great platform because they were saved from, and we forget what we were saved to. Stop paying attention to, I don't have a great testimony. I was just saved in a church. That's a great place to be saved. That's an amazing place to be saved. That you can be a religious kid and actually get saved in church is a miracle. And we need that testimony. And it doesn't necessarily matter what you were saved from because God and his grace is going to save you to something. So set the world on fire with the word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you will recommit yourself to this vital mission spreading the gospel by having the courage to share, the content to share, and the commitment to share in the midst of conflict. Because there is nothing that is more cowardly than to go to heaven by yourself. A courageous Christian is not content to go by himself, but wants to bring others with him. And that's the bridge. What connects the Thessalonian church to our church is that it's the same gospel and the same power of the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Church, we are an ordinary church just like the Thessalonians, but we have an extraordinary God that can work through the ordinary means of sharing the gospel. It is the power of God. Not just speaking about the power of God. It actually is the power of God to save steel-toed boot worker loud nights. He can do it through you if we have the courage to share, the content to share, and the commitment to share in the midst of conflict. I'm going to give you a minute just to consider and to evaluate your own life. I think Gracie's going to play the piano for us as we think through that, and then we'll uh, practice passing the peace together.